Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redeemer Church. We pray that as you listen to this message, that your heart would be softened, your ears would be opened, and your affections for Jesus would be stirred. We pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would look more like Jesus and know Him more as we strive to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family together in Wichita Falls. this morning uh, with a little bit of Bible trivia that I found interesting whenever I was looking over this passage and studying for it this week. Do you know, church, look at me, do you know the first time the word love is used in all of the Bible? Do you know what chapter it is? Either maybe like, oh, well, God is love, right? And so probably Genesis 1. Close? No. Okay, well, it's not 1, it's 2. No. Five? No. Ten? No. Twenty? No. It is until Genesis chapter 22 that the Hebrew word for love is first used, and it's used in verse 2, and it's used to describe a father's love for his son. In Genesis chapter 22, if you know your Bibles really well, this is the passage to where uh, the Lord wakes up Abraham and says, Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, and here's the word, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering in one of the mountains that I shall tell you. This is the first time that the word love is used in the entire, in the entire Bible. It's used a whole lot after that. It, this is the same word, by the way, that God gives the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same word that it doesn't show up all the way until Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, whenever it's talking about a father's love for his son. And I think that's so significant because what we have to see here this morning is the Lord wanted to see a parallel, wanted us to, to notice this parallel between the love of God in a father sacrificing his son and all the way here at the crucifixion of Jesus, our Lord. And so the primary thing that we learn about love is love, there's some form of substitution in the biblical understanding of love. And I hope that as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday, you, you see over and over and over again that all real love is self-sacrificing and all real love is substitutionary. So let's look at our passage today because where we left off last time is we left off with that passive man, Pilate, what, and what did, he, what did he do? He was standing before truth incarnate. He was standing before the way, the truth, and the life, and he looks at the truth and he is passive. He says, what's truth? What is truth? And nothing, nothing, nothing that Pilate said uh, was uh, putting God at the place that he should have been placed. And so we see here in verse uh, 38 of uh, chapter 18, it says, And after he had said these things, he went back inside, outside to the Jews, and he says, I found absolutely no guilt in him. You know how many times Pilate says this? 
during this discourse. If you, took, if you take all the, the parallel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he says six times, six times that I find no guilt in Jesus whatsoever. This, this, man, this, man, is clearly, um, this man is clearly innocent. And Pilate has some weird things going on during this passage that the other, uh, the, the other gospel accounts tell us about that John doesn't tell us about. Whenever he's standing on, uh, on the, the, the stone pavement or the, in Aramaic called Gabbatha, it's set, one of the other gospel accounts says that Pilate's wife comes up to him and says, hey, let this guy go. I have had a dream about him. And remember, this is like six in the morning. And so uh, the wife is probably just about waking up and just saying, hey, I, all night long I was dreaming about this man, this man that is standing before everyone. All night long I was dreaming about him, have nothing to do with him. He, he's innocent. He's innocent. And so what Pilate is doing, he has so much pressure against him. He has the mob against him. He has his wife against him. And he has this... Uh, this idea of a, a mob forming and rioting about to happen again, which was, as we talked about last week, a bad, a bad sign for Pilate that he couldn't really take and he couldn't really handle. And so we see uh, at the very beginning, I want to, to bring you up to speed about the kind of the, the puppet show that is Pilate and how the Jews are trying to get Pilate to do exactly what they want him to do. And so what we see here is uh, the Jews are trying to get Pilate to crucify him. And this is significant. We talked about this last week because according to their law, the way that they execute capital punishment is through stoning, right? And so what they would do is they would go around someone to execute capital punishment and they would kill him with stones. But Jesus had already prophesied. Remember the whole Nick and Knight scene with Nicodemus? Uh, Nick and Knight, whenever uh, uh, Nicodemus is showing up to him and he's like, uh, the, the, uh, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up just like the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And so this is something that's going, uh, Jesus has already prophesied multiple times about the way that he is going to die. And he's saying, I'm not going to die a capital punishment by being cast down to the ground and then stoned with stones. I am going to be lifted up so that the, the scriptures might be fulfilled that in the same way that the bronze serpent, which represented their sin, was lifted up. And so that anyone that just saw the bronze serpent could, be, or could believe and be healed, so must the Son of Man be lifted up the exact same way. And so... This is what's interesting, though. Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, who was his father-in-law, who was the real power, who had been high priest longer than Caiaphas. Notice that's why they went to Annas' house first, and then they went to Caiaphas, the, the, the high priest. They, can, they came up with a plan, and their plan was this. If we can get the Romans to crucify Jesus, then it will be in our back pocket that we'll be able to keep all of our power with the Jewish people because they'll be able to look and point to Deuteronomy 21:23 that says cursed is every man that hangs on a tree and why on earth why on earth would God God curse our messiah obviously he was a fraud he was cursed by God this wasn't this wasn't the man that you were looking for this wasn't the, the hero to overthrow to overthrow Rome even though he, whenever they went to Pilate that's exactly what they said he was trying to do and and so Anna, Annas and Caiaphas thought that they were in control, 
Pilate thought that he was in control, but Jesus was actually in control the entire time. He'd already prophesied about how he was going to die. Caiaphas thought that he had the whole thing worked out because he was going to point to Jesus becoming a curse. And Jesus was like, that's the point. I was going to become a curse always from the very beginning. And so crucifixion was always on the horizon. It was always on the horizon here. In verse 39, look what it says of chapter 18. Pilate, with all this background and all this understanding, looks at them and says, you have a custom, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. And so Pilate, who has this pressure from his wife, right, and doesn't want to do what the, the Jewish people want him to do, like he has disdain for the Jewish people, hence like some of the things that I was telling you about uh, last week about the history of them. He, he was constantly putting up banners in the, in the temple. He was raiding the temple. He was killing, he was killing the mobs with, uh, with his soldiers, and he was doing all these things, and they were constantly calling his bluff. And so Pilate Pilate thinks he's a genius, and he comes up with this plan. Who's the most hated criminal that is a terrorist to the Jewish people? And they're like, oh, this guy Barabbas. No one likes Barabbas. He's an insurrection. The word tells us here that he was a robber, but in, in uh, Matthew and Luke, it says that he was an insurrectionist, that he was a terrorist, that he was a, a murderer, and that he was a thief. And so uh, he wasn't going around murdering uh, Romans or anything. It was like he was robbing his neighbors. He was robbing his people. He was murdering his people. He was the scum of the earth. He was the scum of the earth. And so Pilate and his genius, so he thought, was, was going to do this. He was going to say, look, I'll give you two options. I know it's Passover. Whatever y'all do during Passover, you we- bunch of weirdos. Uh, with, all, with all these lambs and stuff that I don't get or understand what's going on, I'll give you a choice. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And Jesus, now remember, Pilate had heard all the stories probably about Jesus at this point. He heard about the, you know, truly, truly, I say this, truly, truly, I say that. He heard, he heard about probably his soldiers came up to him and was just like, hey, whenever we arrested him, He said, I am, and I don't know what happened, but I fell down on my can uh, immediately, and I stood back up. He helped me back up, and then he healed this guy Malchus's ear. This guy's crazy, all right? This guy's crazy, powerful, and so he's he's, uh, looking at all these things. He's like, okay, this is a healer. This is a miracle worker. Everyone loves him except this. Matthew says that Pilate knew that they were putting Jesus on trial because of envy, that, 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 didn't pass by, that didn't pass by him whatsoever. And so Jesus, or Pilate was like, Barabbas? Or the king of the Jews? The miracle worker? The one that hasn't even broken a reed? The one that's gentle and lowly? Which, which one do you want released to you? And they call his bluff. It says that the religious leaders incited the mob to yell out, Barabbas. Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Now, what's interesting about Barabbas uh, that scholars point out is that Barabbas has a weird name. Bar means son of, and Abbas means father. And so, literally, Barabbas's name means son of a father. Any, any man in here that's not a son of a father? And so, every one of us is a son of a father. And so, what's interesting about this is they released the son of the father. That's his name. 
And why that's so interesting is because Barabbas is supposed to point to all of us. We're all son of a father. And what's terrifying in this is that they chose the son of the father over the true son of the only father. They chose the son of the father over the true son of the only father, the son of God, to be to dwell with them and to be and to be with them. And so they call his bluff, they release Barabbas, and Barabbas is supposed to point to all of us. See, Barabbas, a quick gospel aside here, is Barabbas was probably expecting to be dead by the end of the day. Uh, the two people that were crucified next to Jesus, both were called robbers, and Barabbas was probably the ringleader. They, they kept the middle cross for the kind of the primary person that's in charge of the posse that, that has been crucified, and that place was given to Jesus, but it was meant to be for Barabbas because he was the ringleader of this whole, uh, of this whole insurrection that he was running. And so Jesus, think about this, Jesus was on the cross that Barabbas was supposed to be on, the son of the father, and Barabbas points to all of us, substitution, this is the real love of God. And so uh, that takes us all the way to John chapter 19, which points us to the same old passivity of Pilate. He says he's been innocent over and over and over again. And so whenever he tries his, uh, his faulty plan to give him Barabbas over Jesus, and that didn't work, then he says, you know what? I want to listen to my wife. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go flog him, and maybe, maybe I'm going to beat him so bad that the people will have mercy on him, and I can disperse this mob without getting them to do everything that they want me to do. And uh, if you know anything about ancient Rome and their ability to control power over centuries and centuries and centuries, it's mostly because they have been able to control crowds and mobs better than any other nation uh, before them. They didn't invent crucifixion. The, the Persians invented crucifixion, but the Romans had perfected it. They, they prolonged the greatest amount of torture that humanity has ever known to where whenever they crucified, they didn't crucify in the hand. And I know it says that he, they drove spikes through his hand, but uh, in, in uh, the ancient Near East, the hand and the wrist, there wasn't really a word for wrist. And so most likely what they did is they, they put a, drove a spike through these two bones right here in your wrist so that he could hold, hold on, uh, it'd keep him on the cross for a little bit longer. And how you die in crucifixion, we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, just because it's important to see the suffering of our, of our suffering King and Savior is uh, you usually die through asphyxiation. And, and so the only way that you could catch a breath is if you could lift up on those spikes to get a deep breath and then release back again. And that's why they broke, broke the, the robber's legs that we'll see here in the next couple of weeks and they didn't break Jesus's legs because of scripture but if you broke their leg they couldn't lift up anymore they couldn't push up against the spikes here and so they because they couldn't do that they lost the power in in their chest and then they would die very quickly um, of asphyxiation and that's tragic because one not only is that terrible but they also perfected uh, the ability of, to flog people, which is what verse 1 says, that they took Jesus out to flog them. Now, the Jewish 
the Jews had a custom of giving out 40 lashes minus one, and the Romans didn't know any such custom. And so uh, there's one uh, scholar uh, that, that pointed out uh, a church history named Eusebius who said, uh, Eusebius said that six Roman soldiers, it was passed down that six Roman soldiers were part of this flogging of Jesus, which was extreme, well beyond the four, 39 lashes because it's the 40 minus one, that they, they whipped him and beat him beyond recognition, absolutely beyond recognition. And this was all to fulfill what was seen in Isaiah 53, right? He's seen Isaiah 53 where it says that he was, by his wounds, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And one more thing before I move past this, and I know this isn't enjoyable for me either, but I think it's important to proclaim um, the suffering of our Lord. But one of the things that, that happened that uh, scholars would say took place during the flogging was and whenever they brought down the whip, what they were trying to do with these robbers or these insurrectionists uh, and these criminals and these murderers, was they were trying to get them to confess. Confess your crime. Confess. And then apparently it was a really good form of torture to get, get um, the criminals to confess. But notice, notice how they marveled at Jesus. Why did they marvel at Jesus? Because he was silent. Jesus was silent during his flogging. And every single time they were whipping him and saying, Confess! Confess what you did, Jesus! And they beat him mercilessly in the entire time he was silent. Why? We all like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before, before its shears is silent. He, so he opens not his mouth. Guilty people confess their sins. He was innocent. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God. And so he took his beating in silence. Why? To fulfill the law and the prophets. This was all part of God's plan from the very, very beginning. Jesus was in control from every single standpoint in our passage. And so they begin to mock him after this. The soldiers twist together, this is verse 2, a crown of thorns, and they put on his head this crown of thorns, and they arrayed him with a purple robe, and they, they began to mock him and beat him and say, Behold, hail, King of the Jews. How, how interesting. I, I doubt the Roman soldiers were very aware of the creation story. <laughs> Uh, in the ancient Near East, whenever uh, sin entered into the world, what, why was the, how was the ground cursed because of our sin? Do you remember, church? Blank and thistles it will bring forth. Thorns. Thorns and thistles it will be, bring forth. Why? Because of the curse of our sin. And up on top of our Lord's head was twisted a crown of thorns. He was representing our sin. Quite literally, whenever you look at Jesus, you see him as the king of the Jews with an emblem of our sin upon his head. 
that he was taking care. He was taking care of the primary thing that was separating us from God. That way, whenever you look at Jesus on the cross, there is no way that you cannot understand what he is doing there. Uh, Christian, uh, uh, one of the primary things that illuminates our hearts and our minds to the finished work of Jesus is just look to Jesus on the cross. How is he represented there? He, he, he's, he's dying an unjust death. He is quiet, and he is meek, and he is lowly, and he has a, on his head the sign of our sin as our king, dying in our place. This is so significant. The way that we uh, turn to Jesus is just basically seeing, having eyes to see him very clearly in what he's doing on the cross. Amen? Like that's what we have to, we just have to see him. Just look to Jesus on the cross. Follow with me in verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. No guilt whatsoever. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Now this is mockery, yes, but it's also... It seems to be one of Pilate's last cards to play, to make sure that he was still in control, and he, and he stopped strong-arming them, and what did he start doing? He, he appealed to their sympathy right here. He says, behold the man. Look at him. We, I don't think he's trying to take over Rome. Herod didn't think he was trying to take over Rome. You said he was trying to take over Rome. You said that he was making himself out to be a king. We have completely humiliated this man. He has a crown of thorns. He has a purple robe. And he is beaten beyond recognition. Behold the man. Have pity on him. Isn't this enough? Or has your bloodthirstiness been quenched? Has it been satisfied, mob? And look what they say. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him. Remember, he's, he's remembering the voice of his wife. He's remembering the voice uh, of the mob. He's remembering the rebuke that he's gotten from Rome to where, like, you've got to put this, you've got to get these uh, mob situations under control, Pilate. You're about to lose your job. All right? Let's go, Pilate. Get it together. And he's just trying to pawn off this thing that it's amazing that Pilate even said, you just go and do it. I don't care. Get out of my house. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. Get out of here. I don't care. I don't care what you do. You have my permission. You go kill him. You go kill him. Why didn't they want to kill him? Why didn't they? He even gave them permission to crucify him themselves. Because if, if the, the Roman, or excuse me, if the Romans killed him, then they could just say, look, the Romans killed him. But if it was on, if it was on them, then they, would, they, would, they knew that most of the people, the crowds, he'd fed the, the 15,000 people. He'd, he'd fed so many people. He'd healed most of Judea and Galilee. And if the, the religious leaders went and oversaw the, the crucifixion, then, then they were next, probably. They were going to be stoned because they all held Jesus in such high esteem. So they needed, they needed the Romans to do it. They had to have the Romans do it. So the, the shouting match begins between Pilate, Pilate and the soldiers. 
They needed him on that tree, and they needed Pilate to do it so that they could be off the hook. That was Annas' plan. That was Caiaphas's plan. That was all the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees' plan. This is how it had to go. And Pilate said, I cannot give in to these people because if I give in to these people, this will become a blueprint for insurrection within the Roman Empire. If I cave here, if I cave here, this will just be like, Oh, and next week we want you to do this. Next week we want you to do this for us. And so this was a very hard place to be in. Verse 7 says, The Jews answered him, We have a law. Pilate, just do what we say. Listen, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. He has made himself the son of God. And so remember how they brought Jesus to Pilate. They brought Jesus to Pilate of like, this guy's a troublemaker. He's like, why did you bring him here? He's like, we're here, aren't we? Like, we're here. Just trust us. Just do what we say. Crucify him. He's, he's bad. You know, he's bad. And that's, that's, what they, that's, what they were, that's what they said at the beginning. And in, verse, uh, in Luke's account, they say some of the things that, uh, that were a lie. And he says, we found this man misleading our nation. This is Luke 23, 2. And forbidding, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, even though, you know that verse, he's like, render to Caesar what is Caesar, but render God what is God's. So that's a lie. So they keep on lying. And then he's saying to him, he's saying about himself that he's a king. And so just kill him. Just kill him. You need to do this. They were all lying. But then they told the truth. They told the truth about Jesus. And what was the truth about Jesus? That he made himself out to be the son of God. And their law was found in Leviticus 24, 16. And it says this. It was a blasphemy law. It says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. Uh, and he, he shall be put to death. And so they finally admitted and showed all their cards. Listen, he said he was the son of God. And we don't like that. That's part of our blasphemy laws, so let's kill him for that. And remember, Pilate's a pagan who believes in many, many, many gods, and so he doesn't care that this guy has been dubbed as the son of God. And what's interesting about this is this troubles us a little bit as Westerners. Um, here's a little apologetic aside. Uh, a long time ago, I was uh, at Beatreach, as I said earlier, and it was the first time I came in, in contact with a, with a gentleman who absolutely had internalized this idea that Jesus did not claim deity, that it was something that was made up by the church later on, okay? And so uh, there was this, um, this, he was actually from uh, Great Britain, and I ended up having a very long conversation with him one night just on the street while he was partying and I was telling people about Jesus. And so, and I remember just, one, this be completely foreign to me. Like, what in the world are you talking about? Jesus didn't claim deity? He didn't claim deity? And he was like, yeah, I think that's just something made up by the, uh, the church later, later on. But if you look at the account right here, they knew very clearly what Jesus was saying about himself. 
And to say that this was added later on, the primary reason why the Jewish people wanted to kill Jesus was because he was claiming to be the Son of God. And you say, Cody, there you go. I'm a Western thinker, and the Son of God is different than God, right? I was like, no, 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 hang on, hang on. The Son of Cody is Brooks and canon, all right? They have my DNA. They, they represent me. They represent my family. And this is the way that we should think about it. The son, what, what's the son of a duck? Is it a cow? No, the son of a, the son of a duck is a duck, all right? What's the son of a whale? A, a whale. What's the, what's the son of God? God. All right, and that's how the Hebrew people thought about it, but we've got it all twisted and distorted here in the West, and that's why that um, apologetic sidebar didn't make any sense to me because it was just, because it was just uh, giving over to the thinking of the day uh, that wasn't actually prevalent in, in, in commonplace back then. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying whenever he claimed to be the Son of God. They knew he was making himself out to be God, and that's why they wanted to crucify him. But look at Pilate's response. So great, so great. Pilate had so many opportunities to just do what was right. But look what he does in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He was terrified. He was terrified. And so he entered into his headquarters in a rush, and he said again to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And so he looked at him and said, where, where are you from? And he wasn't asking a, a Where's your home? He wasn't, he, he wasn't asking about a geographical conversation. Remember, he knew he was a Galilean. That's why he sent him over to Herod at the very beginning. He knew where he was from. He knew where he grew up. He was asking about his deity because he was a pagan man who was literally freaking out. He was like, is this Hercules right now? Is this Hercules? Is, is, is this man who is silent who took all of those lashes one by one by one and didn't confess any sin whatsoever. And whenever we went to go arrest him, he knocked down the Roman soldiers whenever he was standing. How is this guy going to come after me? So he's literally afraid because of his pagan upbringing. He's literally afraid of this. And then he gets indifferent. He falls silent. Before, Jesus falls silent before before Pilate. And I couldn't help but think how terrifying the silence of God actually is. Think about the, the, silence, the silence of God to where in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, God was raising up Noah to be a preacher of righteousness to his generation. And then there was some level of silence before God. And then what came after this silence? The whole earth was flooded. There is a limit. There is a limit to the grace of God and how he deals and interacts with people. I don't, I don't know what that limit is, and I think as long as that person is still breathing, um, my responsibility as just a man, your responsibility as a church, church member is to share the gospel with people and never presume on the limits of God's grace. However, theologically speaking, there is a point to where Jesus will look at people and fall silent. You said, I'm innocent six times. You know exactly what you need to do, Pilate. You have all the information right before you. Do what is right. I, I've been on trial this whole morning. You know that I'm innocent. How are you going to respond, Pilate? He falls silent before him. 
And so Pilate, this enrages Pilate, look what he says. You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And so he starts beating his chest right here, right? He's like, what? You don't know who I am? You pathetic little, little man who's bleeding all over my palace, according to Pilate? And he yells at him. And then Jesus speaks the truth in love. <laughs> Jesus does open up his mouth after this. And he says, you would have no authority at me unless it had been handed it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Quick point here. Jesus, standing before Pilate, speaks the truth whenever Pilate speaks falsehood. And look at me, church, look at me. We as a church cannot fall into the Western culture trap which is if someone speaks an error within our congregation, speaks a non-truth within our congregation, the Western thought is to do this. Well, they probably just need me to listen to them. They probably just need me to empathize with them. But is that the way of Jesus? Does the way of Jesus say just empathize with people that, that are internalizing the lies of the enemy, that are internalizing uh, uh, non-truths and bringing it into their life and letting that poison begin to percolate in their heart and fester and become mutant? No. We are the people of the truth. John 18, 37, which we started off with. I, for this purpose, Jesus has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He is bearing witness to what is true. And whenever we hear people espousing falsehoods in our gospel communities, uh, as we go about the way, in our grow groups, the thing that we're supposed to do as the people of the truth is to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. It is not compassionate and it is not loving to sit in the presence of someone pronouncing a lie over their lives and over their self and over their situation and say, man, I hear you, I'm sorry. Speak the truth lovingly. Do so with gentleness and respect. That's the way of Jesus. Pilate just, just, just said a falsehood. I have authority right here. And he's just like, hang on. You don't have any authority. And you know it, right, Pilate? You know it. Are you in charge of this mob? No, they're in charge of you. All right? You have no, you have no authority unless it's been given to you by me. That's what he states right here and what's so amazing about this is <laughs> verse 12 look <laughs> then Pilate sought to release him I, it doesn't say what that is but he's just like one more time uh, just sneak out the back you know I don't know what it was but he, 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 he sought to release him but the Jews cried out all the more if you release this man you are not Caesar's friend everyone that makes himself a king opposes Caesar so when Pilate heard these words he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat of the stone pavement. And, and now it is the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said, sitting right there, behold your king. Earlier he said, behold the man. Now he mocks him and says, behold your king. And quick, quick aside, I, I have to say this because uh, astute uh, Bible students in this room, I know what you're thinking. Didn't Jesus just eat the Passover? Didn't he eat the Passover the day before? And right here it says in verse 
14, now is the day of preparation of the Passover? Well, as I looked into this, it looks like an apparent contradiction, but um, according to Josephus and other scholars back in the day, the Galileans had a, a different schedule of how they organized their time, which was really, really uh, wise uh, based on how many lambs needed to be slaughtered during this time. Uh, Josephus says that 250,000 lambs were uh, typically slaughtered in the temple courts of Jerusalem about during this time. And so what happened was the Galilean Jews... And everyone that pilgrimed from the north would come down, and they uh, would do their Passover the day before. And the Judean Jews, which is where the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees would have been, uh, would have been operating, were, did, the, did the Passover the next day. I know that some of you were probably thinking that, so I wanted to address it out loud. And then they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And then, how interesting, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Now, they're putting Jesus on trial for what? For blasphemy? And these are guys that have the entire Old Testament memorized. Do you know Isaiah 33, verse 22? For the Lord is our God. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawmaker. And the Lord is our king alone. They put Jesus on trial for blasphemy and then to, to drive home the final, the final spike, they blaspheme themselves. The hypocrisy of all of this is remarkable, which means that you and I, you and I, there's no place we can go too far from the grace of Jesus. Jesus experience the full brunt of hypocrisy, blasphemy, wrong, wrong, wrongful accusing. Jesus represented the Barabbas of his day and said, that's what you deserve, but I'm taking it in your place. So how do we apply this today? Very quickly. How do you apply this today? John Owen says this, that the greatest unkindness that you can, can, you can do to Jesus is not believe that he loves you. The greatest unkindness that you can give to Jesus is to believe that he does not love you. Look at the cross, church. Look at what he endures. Look at the hypocrisy. Look at all the things that, that Jesus goes through. Why is he doing that? Why? All of us have to answer that question. Is it for me? Is he up on that, is he on that tree for me? Is he taking that curse for me? Were his stripes really for me? Was his bruises for me? Were the crown of thorns for my, for my sin? Was he pierced for my transgressions? Was he crushed for my iniquities? Was it really for me? And that's what we have to say every single day. Yes, it was for me. Up on the cross, whenever I see Jesus, he represents what I deserve he took on my crown of thorns, which represent my sin, and he died in my place. That's how we know the love of God for us. A couple of weeks ago, I said, gave an illustration that I think drove home this point. You might be thinking, you might be a, a Western thinker like my friend in Beechreach, who says, I don't understand how the, Bible, how the Bible operates. Jesus just said he was the son of God, just like he was saying he's a child of God, right? He, he wasn't really making himself out to be God. And in the same way, how does it prove, how does it prove that someone loves someone by crawling up on a cross and dying? Uh, say, say I was... Uh, I, I had my kids out. I, I live on Lake Park Drive, and if you know Lake Park Drive, please drive slower on Lake Park Drive, all right? 
Um, uh, there's a reason why all the houses are back because everyone likes to just drag down that as fast as they can. But imagine, imagine I was teaching my kids how much I love them, and we were on Lake Park Drive, and I was like, y'all sit there, and someone came roaring up to Lake Park, and I was just like, I love you so much, and I run out, and I just jump in front of the car. Does that show how much I love my kids? No, it shows that, dude, you're crazy. That's not love, that's, that's insanity. And so many Westerners today think, how does Jesus on the cross show me that God loves me? I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus loved me so much that he died on the cross. It doesn't make any sense. It's the same thing as me saying, kids, I love you, and jumping in front of a car. But imagine Cannon. My sweet Cannon, my little three-year-old, runs out there, and I see him. And I take off running, and I call his name. And there's a car coming. And he looks to me, and he stops in the middle of the road. There's not one ounce of me that wouldn't stop to sprint towards him and to push with all my might, even if it means I take the brunt of that car. Listen, the cross shows you how much trouble we were actually in. This is what we deserved. We deserved. The cross shows us how much wrath was actually needed to be poured out on our sin. And what Jesus did is he took the wrath in our place. He pushed us out of the way and he climbed up on that cross and said, everything that they deserve, I will take. I will take. This is the measure of God's love for us. And by the way, I'm done. But by the way, did you know that whenever... The Lord told Abraham, go up to this hill. Go up to this hill and sacrifice. Go sacrifice your son, your only son, who you love. You know how long it took him to get there? Three days. He traveled for three days to go to this Jebusite city in the hills of Moriah. The Jebusite city was called Jerusalem. In the hills that he told him to go crawl up on and sacrifice his son was the hill of Moriah. And this hill, do you know what this hill was, came to be called? The skull. The place of the skull. Golgotha in Aramaic. And whenever Abraham steadied his hand because of the call of the angel, he told his son on the way up there, Isaac looked at him and said, Father, behold the fire in the wood, but where's the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, the Lord himself will provide a lamb. And what was there? There was a substitute, but it wasn't a lamb. It was a ram caught in the thicket. And you know what? <laughs> you know what the Lord says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14? And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, he will provide the sacrifice. And what we see here in our passage is the hill, the same hill of Moriah, was a representative of God's love for us whenever he laid down the real knife of God's wrath on his son. He was pierced for me and for you. This is our God. This is the measure of his love for you and for me. We have to respond by saying thank you. We have to respond by saying this is for me and live our lives completely different because of it. If not, if not, if you're passive like Pilate, there'll come a point 
and it's that point is probably death, to where you experience the silence of God. And that is a terrifying place. May it never be so. May the people that hear my voice right now, and may the people that always hear your voice, be far away from the silence of God, because they've internalized the love of God as displayed on the cross of Jesus. Let's pray.